0: Thank you very much for reading for us and uh, I'd like to uh, turn back if you would to where we finished yesterday by way of introducing the passage that we just read. You remember we were in Isaiah chapter 40 so if we can just flip back there and remind ourselves of one or two things uh, as we come into this amazing passage uh, which is the last of the servant songs. And um you may remember that in Isaiah chapter 40 we saw how the shepherd who rules, who brings victory by his mighty arm over his enemies, uses those strong arms to gather his lambs and to protect his flock. But the book keeps on telling us that the flock is a wayward flock, that it's prone to unbelief, that it's easily seduced by idolatry. And what chapter 40 shows us about the old covenant people of God that they were beset by doubts and difficulties. Does God really care? Does he really have the power? Is he really interested in us? That is mirrored in the uh, unevangelised world of Isaiah's day, that is, all the pagan nations, the Gentile nations around. And in the structure of the book, chapter 40 deals with the people of Israel, and chapter 41 deals with all the other pagan nations. Um, we're not going to look at chapter 41 in any detail, but I do want to take you just to the last verse of the chapter. You'll see that in the, um, uh, <clears throat> the ESV, the last section of chapter 41 is called The Futility of Idols. And the chapter ends, Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. That is where the whole Gentile world is. Now if this servant is going to do such a great job, if this king, this mighty uh, sovereign shepherd is going to rescue his people, what about the rest of the world? Isn't God concerned about that? And of course we know from the very beginning of the Bible that he is because every human being is created in the image of God. But it says at the end of chapter 41, let's face the reality of where we are without God. Worshipping delusions, works that are empty, Images that are like empty winds, there's nothing in them. So how will the Sovereign Shepherd change things as he comes to rescue and to restore? Remember our big question from yesterday, how is the faithless city to become a faithful city? Put it personally, what will change our proud, rebellious hearts and minds and begin to shape us into the children of God? who reflect the character of our Heavenly Father. So chapter 41 presents the dilemma, and then chapter 42, verse 1 says, Look, behold my servant. And this then is the direction that the book is going to take now, right up to chapter 55. This is the book of the suffering servant. And that behold pulls us up, stops us and says, focus, look, God has a solution. My servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. As has often been said, there is a better story and his name is Jesus. So 42.1 introduces us from nowhere to someone whom God calls my servant. Just look with me at the first two verses of this chapter. He says that he upholds him. He's chosen by God. He's upheld by God. He delights in God. And God delights in him. And he anoints him with his spirit. I have put my spirit upon him to equip him for the task that God has given him. So, this person, the servant, we don't know who he is. We don't know where he's come from. But he has divine authority. He has divine approval. And he has divine ability. And what is his task? What's he going to do? Look at the end of verse 1. He will bring forth justice to the nations. The nations that are sunk in idolatry are going to receive this word justice or righteousness or proper thinking about something. The, The Hebrew word is mishpat and it means the decisions that God makes And the revelation that he gives about what is right. Justice is the reality of righteousness. This is the way it really is. This is the way the world works. Because this is the character of God. And so that's what the nations need. You see it at the end of verse 3. He will faithfully bring forth mishpat, justice. You see it in verse 4. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established mishpat in the earth. It's a kingly word about giving authoritative decisions, getting it right, and therefore righteousness and truth. I've often tried to think of a a contemporary illustration of this, and uh, the one that I've used before, was I was reminded of yesterday, watching the rugby yesterday afternoon. You know, when there's an event uh, like a great big sporting fixture, rugby or uh, if it's tennis, whether uh, cricket, all of them have now the replay which makes the right decision when human eyes can't quite see whether the ball did go over the line, whether it was in or out mm-hmm. or whatever. So the umpire or the referee or someone will go like this and we'll get the authoritative view. And on the basis of that, the try is awarded or the point is uh, given to the tennis player. That is mishpat. It's making authoritative decisions that are based on reality, truth, righteousness. And that is what God sends his servant into the world to do. So there is a solution. And it's going to be this person called the servant who is going to bring the solution to fruition. You'll notice that he is introduced in chapter 42 as very self-effacing, verse 2, he doesn't cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. He's not a rabble rouser, he's not getting a whole army together to have a revolution. He's gentle, verse 3, so he doesn't snap the reed that has been damaged and he doesn't quench the wick of the candle when it's burning low. No, he isn't someone who is powerful in the sense of steamrollering everyone else or not caring for them, not being concerned about them. He's faithful. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And he's determined, verse 4, he won't grow faint or discouraged till he's done it. But he's very different from earthly rulers. He has qualities because the spirit of the Lord is upon him. Like that uh, king that we saw in chapter 11 yesterday, who is divine in his nature and in his work, is able to do something that is eternal. Behold my servant. Now, in the intervening chapters, there are two other servant songs. You may see at the top of the notes, I've put the the references, because I hope you might perhaps read them up this week and see how they too give us more pictures of Jesus, chapter 49 and chapter 50. We can't actually spend time on that this morning, but we can be sure that these servant songs are about Jesus. And the reason we can be sure is because of the New Testament. The New Testament gives us ample evidence and justification for the fact that uh, these, uh, this figure, the servant, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only because many quotations from the servant songs are referred to uh, in the apostolic preaching in the New Testament and even by Jesus himself, but also because passages like Acts chapter 8... Um, indicates that under the direct guidance of the Holy Spirit, uh, the early church recognised that Jesus fulfils these prophecies of the suffering servant. So if you want to flip with me just to Acts for a moment, Acts chapter 8, it's a very um, familiar story, but it's a very important one in establishing the identity of the servant. It's page 1105, 1105 in the Bibles. Philip, who's uh, one of the deacons, not Philip the uh, apostle in this case, but Philip who becomes the evangelist, one of the deacons of the Jerusalem church, is sent by the Holy Spirit to go and meet a man who's traveling in a chariot. Look at the top of the page, verse 29. The Spirit said to Philip, go over and join the chariot. It's on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza, and the man in the chariot is the Chancellor of Ethiopia, who's been in Jerusalem, who obviously was very impressed by Judaism, and who is reading an Old Testament prophet from a scroll as his chariot is taking him back home uh, along the coastal route down through Egypt to Ethiopia. And Philip runs up to him, verse 30, and he hears him reading Isaiah the prophet. And he asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless somebody guides me? It's a great example this of one to one reading the Bible. People want to know what the Bible says, but how can they know unless someone guides them? Maybe there's somebody you could read the Bible with one to one and help them to understand. That's what's going on here. One to one evangelism. He invited Philip into the chariot to come up and sit with him, and he's reading from Isaiah fifty three. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. And the eunuch, the chancellor, said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? This is verse 34. About himself, or about someone else? Isn't that a great question? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Philip's been sent by the Spirit, The spirit is giving Philip the words to say, because as they go along the road, the eunuch is obviously converted. He's convinced of the truth. And although we don't have the whole conversation, we get the end of the conversation where he says, I want to be baptized. And they stop the chariot, go down to the water, and Philip baptizes this Ethiopian government official. And then when they come up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. That means that the spirit directed him to go somewhere else. He just leaves the eunuch. Well, you see, the spirit's in it all. He guides him to the chariot. He gives him the words to say. He opens the man's eyes and the man becomes a Christian. So Philip can't possibly be wrong when he says Isaiah 53 is about Jesus. He hasn't made that up. That's God's interpretation of God's word. And that's why we don't need 21st century theologians to tell us it's all about Israel or something else. You know, people would have it mean anything rather than Jesus. But the New Testament says, no, it's Jesus that this is all about. He is the one who uh, is going to fulfill this great work of making it possible for the fallen and faithless city to be redeemed. Well, with that background, let's come to our passage, 52.13 to 53.12. It is a carefully crafted poem of five sections, five stanzas. And I've just asked a question of each of the sections to help us unpack it. Some of us will be perhaps quite familiar with this passage. It's probably the most well-known passage in Isaiah, But I think there's so much here that I pray that it'll be a continued refreshment and encouragement to us. And maybe we'll learn some new things too. So we have this wonderfully crafted poem. And uh, Isaiah has put his own marker post at the beginning of it. Do you remember chapter 42 verse 1? Behold my servant. Well, here chapter 52 verse 13. Behold my servant. So the same person of chapter 42 is here in chapter 53. And so these four servant poems that run through this section of Isaiah are clearly all about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now each stanza or section represents three verses in our translation of Isaiah's text. And it's a carefully crafted poem because the first three verses and the last three verses balance each other by repeating the same theme. And then section two and section four balance each other by looking at the servant and the work that he does. And in the middle, section three, is the very heart of the poem. That's the way that Jewish thinking works. Greco-Roman thinking follows a logical pattern and comes to a conclusion at the end and says, this is so, isn't it? This is where we've got to. Here's the logic. Now, that's the way we tend to think. Uh, Certainly in um, Western thinking, that's been the sort of dominant mode. But in Jewish thinking, it's not the end of the argument that is the focal point. It's the center. Or, (coughs) to put it another way, take the focal point and make it the center of what um, you are expounding. So, in the center of the poem, we get the big idea And the centre of the poem is verses 4 to 6. And in the centre of the centre is verse 5. So right at the heart, the big idea of the poem is, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. There's the midpoint, that's what it's all about. It all revolves around that. And that's the meaning of the song, Uh, And obviously that must govern our interpretation of it. Philip told him the good news about Jesus. And Jesus himself uh, embraced the vision of the servant for his own ministry. Here's Jesus speaking in Luke 22 verse 37. He says, it is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Well, that's chapter 53 verse 12 of, of Isaiah. He was numbered with the transgressors. See it there on the page. Jesus says, it is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And says Jesus, I tell you, that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. So we're really on sure ground when we say, here is God's inspired, 700 years before it happened, description of and interpretation of The servant's great work, which we now know, was the cross of Calvary. So in the time that remains to us, I want to just take the zoom lens to this amazing chapter and focus on our understanding. Firstly, in the first stanza, 52.13-15, let's ask the question, who can this be? If you just cast your eyes above, you'll see that verse 11 of the chapter has said, Depart, depart, go out from there. This is all about leaving Babylon after the exile. There's a new exodus happening. The exile is ending. God's new work is beginning. We saw that in chapter 40 as well. And so the song explains how this is going to be achieved. And in the sequence of the first Three songs we've learned about the person and work of the servant, that he is going to be God's agent who will bring God's divinely appointed remedy to the very deepest needs of human beings, our sin and our rebellion. But how is still the unanswered question when you come to 52.13. Now we begin to get the answer really spelt out. But who is this servant? Well, there's a very curious paradox here that at first looks almost impossible to reconcile. Have a look at verse 13 with me, and you see the servant there is described as high and lifted up and exalted. We might say in New Testament terms, risen, ascended, glorified. So he's in a position of immense authority and majesty and power. And we're told in verse 1 that that is the result of my servant acting wisely. Acting wisely means knowing what to do in order to achieve the result. Success. If you act wisely, then you can expect uh, things to turn out well. So the servant has done that and it turns out very well. He is high and lifted up and exalted. But there's an extraordinary contrast in the next verse because in verse 14 we're told his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind that many were astonished at him. So this high, lifted up, majestic, glorious figure is someone who has been disfigured, marred. It's almost as though his face is unrecognisable as a human face. He's been brutally treated. So who can this be? And how can it be? Well, whenever you get questions like that in the Bible, you know the answer, don't you? Read the next verse. Keep reading on, keep reading on. And if you read verse 15, you'll see that this mysterious servant is going to have widespread and profound effects on nations and kings. He's going to sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. Some translations say startle many nations. There's only one little vowel point difference between the two verbs. And as uh, my Hebrew teacher Alec Matier used to say, if there are two possible translations and both of them seem to be possibly right, enjoy them both. So sprinkle or startle, nobody knows quite what it is. Startle would mean that they are amazed and surprised at what he's done. That would certainly fit the context here. Sprinkle is a technical word for cleansing in a sacrificial context and that also would fit the context here. So here we are with this servant doing a work that is startling because it seems as though he's been beaten to a pulp almost but now he's high and lifted up and exalted and the work that he's been doing is sprinkling the cu- the purifying, cleansing, Uh, blood that was sprinkled onto the place of sacrifice in the Old Testament. And this now is available, and here's the shock, to many nations. That is to everyone. Because of course in the Old Testament it was only available to the Jews. You could go into the court of the Gentiles, but you couldn't go any further than that. Then there was the court of the Jewish men, then there was the, uh, the court in which the sacrifices were made, and then there was the holiest place of all. No Gentile could go anywhere near that but now this servant is going to provide cleansing for all the nations, many nations. And kings will shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and what they've not heard they understand. This is a complete revelation. And of course that's what the death of Jesus was to the world. As the good news of Jesus reaches out across the world, uh, people are startled by it. It's extraordinary. It seems too good to be true, doesn't it? In many ways and often... Uh, People cannot even believe that God would love us that much. I love those words of Charles Wesley. I'm sure you sometimes sing an old hymn or two. And one of the great old hymns is, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood? And in one of the verses, Wesley says, Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Who can explore his strange design? And then he goes on to say, It's mercy all immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. It's mystery all, yeah, but it's mercy all. The mercy is the explanation of the mystery. It's about Jesus, buffeted and beaten again and again, scourged and whipped to within an inch of his life, his face lacerated by the crown of thorns that's pressed into his flesh, almost unrecognisable as a human being. But that is how God sprinkles the nations. That is why you and I are here this morning. When Charles Haddon Spurgeon was asked, he was a 19th century Baptist preacher, a very famous man in his day. When he was asked, can you, Mr. Spurgeon, put the gospel into one sentence? He said, I'll try. It's a very simple sentence. Jesus died for me. Jesus died for me. That's what makes you a Christian. That's the gospel. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place, condemned he stood. Who can this be? Well, obviously someone who is more than human. Obviously someone who has a role which is beyond anything that a human being could fulfill. So what is he like? Second question, verses 1 to 3. That's the question in verse 1. Who has believed what they heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? See, it picks up the idea at the end of verse 15 of being startled and amazed and never being able to predict this. And so verse 1, you could paraphrase, whoever would have imagined that the arm of the Lord would be revealed in this way? Whoever could have imagined that when God came to rectify the fallen, faithless city, to make a new people for himself, that he'd do it this way? Can this really be the arm of the Lord at work? Surely if God is going to intervene in his world, he'll do it in a display of sovereign power and magnificence and majesty. But what is this arm of the Lord like? Verse 2. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root ...out of dry ground. Remember chapters 9 and 11... ...he's going to be the shoot from the root of Jesse. So he was born, as we know, in Bethlehem... ...and like any child he grew... ...and he grew up before him, that is before the Lord... ...before his heavenly Father... ...whose eye was always on him. But from a human point of view... ...he was just like any other young shoot. But this young shoot was planted in inhospitable... ...parched soil like a root in the dry ground. That's true of Jesus, isn't it? He was born in obscurity and poverty, cradled in a manger, had to leave as a refugee to Egypt under the age of two, reared in a nondescript Galilean village. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Is that how the Lord reveals his mighty arm? It's an amazing strategy. And as he grew to maturity, nobody took a second look Verse 2, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. That's a wonderful thing about the Lord Jesus, isn't it? In his humanity, he had no majestic presence, no overwhelming charisma. Obviously, he was a very impressive person in his teaching and his works and so on. But it wasn't as though he had great film star looks or he had all the trappings of celebrity. There was nothing about him. Uh, In his physical form that uh, wowed people, that's always God's way. But further in verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Twice we're told he was despised. At the beginning of verse 3 and again at the end of verse 3. And how often that runs through the Gospels, doesn't it? Remember some of those quotes in the Gospels? Isn't this the son of Joseph, the carpenter? He can't be anybody special. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Does anybody who matters really believe in him, the Pharisees say? He's constantly met by contempt and rejection, which culminated in the mockery of a trial. You think of the torture that he endured and the ignominy and shame of a public and appallingly painful death on the cross. They all turn their backs on him. It's as though he was thrown on the garbage heap, which is, of course, what happened to the bodies of crucified people. Thrown on the rubbish heap outside Jerusalem. And that's the attitude of some people still today to Jesus. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That word acquainted means literally knowing grief as a personal friend. Constantly in touch with grief. Even his disciples forsook him and fled. But the end of verse 3 introduces a new dimension with that little word, we. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Doesn't that stand for the whole of humanity? We, the readers, whoever we are, whatever generation, whatever our background. We begin by esteeming him not. We may patronize him, we may admire his teaching, we may nod agreement to his values, we may say he's a good man and a fine example, but see him on the cross rescuing us from our sins which will otherwise condemn us to hell, and people look the other way and pour another cup of coffee. We esteemed him not. And sometimes even the church joins that crowd. Sometimes even to the church, the cross becomes an embarrassment. It's much easier to preach a message that offers all the blessings of the kingdom without any real repentance, without any real humbling of ourselves before Christ crucified. But that is not the gospel. It's okay for people to wear a cross as a chain around their necks, but the real question is, Is the cross ruling in our hearts? That's a very different matter. Because if we move from the cross, where do we move to? There's no other saving power. Evangelism becomes then focused on making it as easy as possible to accept the idea of God. But that's not the gospel. The real question is not whether I can accept God. Listen, the real question is whether God can accept me. That's the big question. And without the man of sorrows, we can't be accepted. We are without hope. We're left with a man-made, me-centred, sentimental religion of the feelings. But the cross is what gives reality to the forgiveness and the new life that only Christ can bring. No one is going to sacrifice or suffer for an easy, feel-good Christianity. As soon as the going gets tough, the easy, feel-good Christians all get going. They pack up and leave. We esteemed him not. So don't be seduced by a Jesus Christ superstar who will take us into his orbit and shower us with blessings and expect nothing from us. The man of sorrow says... If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Now that's the Jesus we meet in Isaiah. Are we going to hide our faces and esteem him not? Third question, what will he do? And here we're at the centre of the poem. Now, although the question is phrased in the present tense, what will he do, or future tense, really, the answer is given, of course, in the past tense. The real question is, for us, what has he done? And picking up from verse 3, where we suddenly come into the picture, people might use the familiar argument that there's no smoke without fire, that if he is suffering so appallingly, He must be suffering because he's a sinner. Um, And that is why we esteemed him not, why we despised him. That's what the religious leaders saw on the cross. They saw that Jesus was getting judgment on his blasphemy for claiming to be the son of God. They thought the cross was richly deserved. Well, it was indeed a divine punishment. But at verse 4, it suddenly becomes clear why he suffers that punishment. Do you see how he and we alternate now all through these verses? He has borne our griefs. He has carried away our sorrows. We were right to esteem him as smitten by God and afflicted. But it wasn't for his sins. It's because he is carrying the curse and dying on the cross for us. Verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Now that's what's so startling and shocking and amazing and wonderful. That he's doing it for us. Make it even more personal for you, for me. And so verse 5 then, you see, carries us to the very heart of the matter as it moves beyond our sorrows and our griefs to our sins, our transgressions, our iniquities. The greatest issue that we face is the issue of our sin. The word transgression is the sin that crosses the line. It goes across what God says. It says, God says this, but I'm going to do that. That's a transgression. And iniquity means the The sort of ineradicable stain, the stain that you can't get out of your character, the fallenness of our nature, the expression of that in all sorts of thoughts and words and deeds. Iniquity leads us to have no heart for God, no real desire to go God's way, no willingness to let God be God in our lives. And the amazing thing is that that is precisely why Jesus was pierced through and crushed on the cross. See, those verbs speak about his destruction, really. They're fatal verbs. He was wounded. He was crushed. And very clearly, in the next section, he died because of our sin and rebellion. So he takes our chastisement, our punishment. His stripes are what bring us healing. And this is the great exchange that lies at the heart of the doctrine of the cross that Jesus becomes sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And it's wonderful that we can look at this passage in the context of the Lord's table spread here. We'll be breaking bread and drinking the wine, remembering that his body was broken for us, that his blood was shed for our sin. And this central doctrine of substitutionary atonement is right at the heart of God's revelation of his glorious gospel and of his purposes in the world. Now, of course, that doesn't exhaust everything that can be rightly said about the cross, but it is the basic biblical understanding of the cross. And if you don't have that right, you'll never understand either the cross or the Christian faith. This is not just a theory of atonement, as there is one theory amongst many. At the heart of biblical Christianity is the atoning death of Jesus In my place, as my representative, as my substitute, a death which involved him bearing the penalty of my sin. And at that point, the question is answered. How will the faithless city become a faithful city? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Here is God's total sufficient answer to the human dilemma. It's all of grace. It's all of God. That little phrase, for, means on account of, arising from. He was wounded on account of our transgressions. He was crushed because of our iniquities. It arose from that. On him was the chastisement that brought us peace. So doesn't verse 6 summarize it so beautifully? It begins with all and it ends with all. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But this is what God has done. Here's the solution. And the Lord has laid on him, the servant, the iniquity of us all. If you are a sinner who's gone astray, then the Saviour's sacrifice for you is sufficient for your sin, for all sin. And the straying sheep is saved by the sacrificial lamb, the lamb of God who bears away the sins of the world. And I love that uh, verb there at the end of verse 6, the Lord has laid on him. Literally the verb means has gathered together and put upon. It's a causative verb. The Lord has caused to meet upon him the iniquity of us all. It's as though he takes all our sins, all those hidden sins, all those sins that we've even forgotten, all those sins that we don't want to admit and he brings them and puts them on the Lord Jesus and he carries them in our place. And as one of the other old hymns says, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. God couldn't possibly love us more than he does, and he's never going to love us less. And he's never going to let us down, and he's never going to let us go, because he has done it for us. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How has he done it? Verses 7 to 9. Well, we move back from explanation uh, uh, to description now. Here Isaiah emphasises not just that Christ's suffering was vicarious for us, but was voluntary. He allowed himself to be oppressed and afflicted. He humbled himself. There's the picture there of the Lamb led to the slaughter, or the sheep, before the shearers. There's no resistance. Jesus allowed himself to be crucified. Of course, he could have called for legions of angels to come and help him. It uh, could have been done in a moment. Or if you've ever been in Israel and you've visited the Garden of Gethsemane, you'll know that uh, it's very near to the Judean wilderness, to the uh, sort of country outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was only 10 or 15 minutes walk away from escape. He could have gone at any moment if he wanted to. But no, he gave himself up because that's why he came. Yes, from the human point of view, as verse 8 says, it was by oppression and judgment that he was taken away. And he was cut off out of the land of living. He was probably only about 33 years old when he died stricken for the transgression of my people. That's what it's all about, you see. So it's not just that he suffered, it is that he died. He was cut off out of the land of the living. And the death is confirmed in verse 9. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Again, from the Gospels we know that that refers to the thieves that were crucified either side of him, one of whom repented and one of whom did not. And we know that the rich man is Joseph of Arimathea who provided his tomb for Jesus to be buried in so that his body was not tossed onto Gehenna, the rubbish heap outside Jerusalem. So all of this predicted 700 years before it happened. And it was all innocent. He'd done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. But God is superintending it all. God is bringing it all to pass and in spite of all the human conspiracy to cut him down and to destroy the good shepherd, he's totally in charge of it all the time. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then lastly, well then, what is the outcome? And this is a glorious and wonderful thing. The Verse, uh, verse 10 is very significant. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So the death of Jesus isn't ultimately at the hands of wicked men, but in the hands of the Lord. Remember, the Lord is the Holy Trinity. The Father sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. But he came not as a reluctant victim. It was the determined plan of God the Trinity from eternity past into time that he would send his own Son, that Jesus the Son would come. That God, the mighty maker, would die for the creature's sin. And uh, this is the Lord's will. The word crush is a strong verb. It means to grind down. Was that God's will? Yes, he was prepared to suffer himself. Remember, Jesus is not an innocent third party suffering at the hands of a vengeful father. Jesus is God himself. Taking upon himself this Guilt offering that he makes for our sins. And that's what the verse says, isn't it? Verse 10. When his soul makes an offering for sin, and then there's an extraordinary change at this point, he shall see his offspring. I mean, if you're an offering for sin, the offering for sin was dead. Of course it was. It was a sacrifice. So there must be beyond the sacrifice, life. Because he sees his offspring. He prolongs his days. The will of the Lord prospers in his hand. That can't happen if you're dead. So here we've got resurrection. Here we've got life beyond the cross. Here we've got the amazing work of God by which he brings through this sacrifice victory over all the hostile powers of sin and darkness and evil. That's the most amazing thing of all, perhaps. That, verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. And through knowledge of him, the righteous one, my servant, many will be accounted righteous because he will bear their iniquities. That's where we are if we're Christians this morning. Righteous in God's sight, clothed in the precious righteousness of Jesus, which was purchased by his precious blood on the cross. He's borne our iniquities. He's made us to be accounted righteous, just as if we'd never sinned because of his sacrificial work on our behalf. And therefore the last verse says, no conquest in world history is greater than the victory of the Lord Jesus. Therefore, the servant lives on as the conquering king. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. That's the imagery of the verse which sees him enjoying the spoils of victory. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. That's what you did if you won a battle in those days. And this is the greatest battle of all. Won by the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And in the God-given position of being exalted and ascended to the right hand of the Father. So he pours out his grace upon his people as the fruit of his passion because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgression, transgressors. That is why he can divide the spoils of his conquest with his people and why we enter in to the fruit of what he's done. And you know when you get to the last book of the Bible, the choirs of heaven are singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive honor and power and blessing and might. So as we come to the Lord's table... We've put our faith in Jesus, I trust, if your hand is in his for time and for eternity, if you're looking to him and him alone as the means by which you are in relationship with your creator, who is now your heavenly father. Let's rejoice in the victory of Calvary. He's overcome the sharpness of death. He's conquered all those hostile powers. Even the devil himself, he's robbed death of its sting. And he's opened the kingdom of heaven to all believers. Yes, all believers. The rescue is complete. So when he died on that cross, he cried, finished. The work is done. And God wrenched down the temple curtain and opened up the holiest place of all and said, you can come in now. Because my son has borne your iniquities and carried your transgressions on the cross. Behold my Servant. And as we meet the Lord Jesus in Isaiah and see how he is the solution, well then, I'll leave you to do the work on chapters 54 and 55. There's a massive expansion. In chapter 54, the people of God are lengthening their tent cords, they're extending their accommodation, they're building new sorts of places because the family of God is growing and growing and growing as a result of the servant's work. There's perfect security. They're never going to be overcome again by the hostile powers as they trust the servant and his risen power and his uh, heavenly father's provision for them. Then they will find in him and through him perfect security. And lastly in chapter 55, even the Gentiles, even us, at this distance in time and at this distance in geography, even we are brought in. That's why chapter 55 says seek the Lord while he may be found call upon him while he's near let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. That's the solution to the problem solution for Israel but supremely the solution for the new Israel the new covenant community of God, the Gentile nations brought in through faith in the Lord Jesus and made partners with him in the heavenly kingdom forever and ever, no longer far off, Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, male and female, all one in Christ Jesus. Behold my servant. Let's pray. Let's just spend a moment or two in quietness as we reflect on these amazing words in Scripture and maybe one or two things that have especially uh, impacted us this morning. Let's turn it into prayer, just in the quietness of our own hearts and minds. Mm -hmm. Lord, we worship you and ask that in your mercy and grace you will feed us with your truth, strengthen us with your forgiving power Equip us by your Holy Spirit and enable us to be those who, by our lives as well as by our lips as we have opportunity, are constantly pointing to our servant, our suffering servant king, our risen righteous ruler, our powerful ascended Lord. Make us people who minister Christ, we pray, wherever you send us and help us to grow more and more into his likeness so that your love and grace and truth may flow through our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.